Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Thanks for listening to the Hedgeye Investing Summit, featuring conversations with some of the sharpest minds in investing. To get access to the other eight Hedgeye Investing Summit conversations and for more great investing content, go to hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back. For me, this is my last one. Josh Steiner is going to take the last one. So uh, I have my closer, and it's the first time uh, that I've ever had a, a real conversation with Tracy Shukart. But the closer, I, 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 we had to choose you because you close so many. You have so many good one-liners on Twitter. You got great, <laughs> you, you got great closing. I mean, there are a lot of people actually out there that need an education. And the first thing I wanted to say is, is thanks for joining me. But thanks, you know, on behalf of a lot of people, right? I mean, we have a we have an environment where people can be you know, you know, spoon-fed some bullshit narrative pretty much every day. But you're you're as active out there as anybody I could find. So. So I want to thank you on behalf of everybody who's a fan of yours. They've, they've given us a lot of feedback on that. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure, and I, I really appreciate being on today. That's cool. Uh, so how does a girl from uh, go from, you know, from USC to, to the C-Bot? So, <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of a long way around, actually. I took a <laughs> career detour first, so... I was actually in medical supply sales for a long time, uh, and I decided one day I didn't, uh, I was just hated traveling all the time. I didn't like my job. I was, you know, selling plastics, medical-grade plastics, so you know, how exciting <laughs> that is. Um, so I quit my job and moved to Chicago and started knocking on doors and uh at the CBOT because that's what I wanted to do. So, <laughs> so you, like, did did you actually want to be a trader, or like, or you just didn't want to be selling plastic bottles? Well, <laughs> no, I actually wanted to be a trader. My my dad was a broker, so oh, okay. kind of friends in the family. Yeah, and and and, and you kind of got that swag. Not kind of. You explicitly have it. It's it's your Twitter handle, right? You got uh, Chai Girl is your Twitter handle. <laughs> For those right. of you that don't follow her, you absolutely have to. Um, but is tweeting a little bit like trading? Um, sometimes, absolutely. absolutely. You have to weigh, like, uh, you know, did I make, did, should I have tweeted that? Should I have not tweeted that? How is this going to come off? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't really have, um, I don't think you have much of a, a, of a mute button or, a, or, a, or anybody auditing your, your tweets or censoring right. you. So that's good. But I mean, I think in this day and age, um, let's just take the topic of the day. I mean, I, I do think that people like you uh, who have experience, and it's really street smart experience with practical trading experience, you can kind of really bring the thunder uh, in an environment where people, like I said, it's total bullshit. You know, like when people, you go up to somebody, I've been using this one-liner all, all week throughout the investing summit, you go up to somebody at a grocery store at Stu Leonard's in, in our, where I live here and tell, tell the mom or the dad, whoever's with the kids, that there's no inflation in that store. And I mean, they're going to like mock you, like, or they're going to think that you're some alien. I don't know what, but you know, let's start with that, that topic of inflation, uh, which clearly continues to accelerate since you know, hitting a, a cycle, kind of a cyclical um, trough in June. 
But what do you think? Like, what are you trying to communicate when you're when you're going at it that way? I think when we need to talk about inflation, what we need to talk about is inflation is always increasing. That two percent is just the two percent they want it to raise per year. So when you say inflation's coming down, it's not. It's the pace of acceleration that's coming down. It's not actually inflation coming down. And I think that concept is kind of misunderstood by people a lot. Um, and I, I think that it's going to continue because I think, you know, we're in for higher for longer commodity prices, uh, particularly energy, which runs the entire world. Um, and so I don't think, you know, I think the Fed is going to have a really hard time getting to their 2%. And eventually, I think they're going to have to accept a higher percentage. And or when, com- or completely destroy the economy. And when you see like the underlying, so let's just talk about components of energy inflation that you're either trading uh, or analyzing. Can you kind of go through what you see as the most blazingly obvious to somebody who may not trade anything at all? Yeah, well, I think the most blazing obvious thing is obviously uh, you're going to be looking at, you when you want to be analyzing kind of the energy input costs, the biggest thing you want to be looking at is diesel. Because diesel makes the planet go around, right? You can't farm without diesel. You can't transfer goods without diesel, whether that's uh, domestically or internationally, marine, you know, heavier marine fields and things like that. So I think you really need to look at diesel as kind of the energy input that's moving the world. And if like if I if I'm like sitting here looking at diesel from a from a from a just a trading perspective, and all I'm doing like like Dumbo that I am is trading the price volume volatility signal. Um, yeah, I'd clearly be long that. It'd be long propane. It would be long crude. But you know, like what do you do in terms of your research process? Like, because you have so much, like I said, so many tweets that really they don't have to do with what I just said you know, all the time. They're, they're, there's a lot of fundamental uh, research being done there. What's your process like day to day when you're researching this stuff? Well, I think, you know, when I start, obviously, you know, I start very early in the morning and I start with obviously, you know, looking at what the markets did overnight, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, read a lot of news to see what is happening, what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening, what geopolitical risk is there going on, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in Asia, what's happening, you know, as far as all these markets are concerned, because I'm looking at it from a global standpoint, not just from, say, a North American standpoint. And and do you think that, I mean, like, let's just take the Middle East because it's the hot topic du jour, and, I, and I, I'm not the biggest fan of being a macro tourist, and you aren't either. I mean, you're you're, to, you're hitting lots of topics, not just what's trending that day. Uh, but do you think that the what's going on in the Middle East is understood or misunderstood from a, uh, from a market's th- perspective? From a market's perspective, I think it's a little bit misunderstood um, in the fact that there's just so many geopolitical players that are involved and that it's essentially a, a powder keg, right? So one thing can, you know, trigger another event in another country. And so I think that, um, you know, it's just everybody's focused on, you know, what's happening in Israel currently, but really we have to look at all the other players involved, and that includes all the surrounding countries, Syria, uh, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, uh, and kind of factor that into the whole equation. And then also, you know, from an energy standpoint, obviously, what I'm looking at is, you know, how is this going to affect 
energy markets. You know, is it is it possible that we'll actually see the Suez Canal close that I've heard, seen people suggest? I would say no. Um, they basically have their own army and then backed up by the Egyptian army and uh, and the Israeli army. So, you know, I have to take each of these issues and look at what are people saying and does this make sense and does this factor into my analysis? Yeah, and how much of, how much, um, of that last part does it make sense? I mean... This, this to me is really the hallmark of people on, whether it be in Chicago or in New York, Wall Street kind. I mean, it's the, the, the differentiating factor between a good trader and a bad trader is the one who has the common sense. Because <laughs> so, so many people, well, never mind. I mean, we can get, we'll get into that topic too. I mean, so many people are bought and paid for and believe the Fed's bullshit, for example. But, you know, like, right. what, how much do you rely on? You know, Tracy Shukart's looking at, you know, she gets up every morning at the same hour and is grinding. And, and are you depending on your gut and or, or your common sense a lot or not? Uh, all, all the time. I mean, all the time. <laughs> all the time. You uh, have, all the time, buddy. Because, I, well, you know, I mean, I you read so much. And, you know, of course, I go through Twitter because I want to see what are what are other people saying? What are other analysts saying? You know, what are other countries saying? Obviously, I, you know, have to I read a lot of uh, news from uh, other countries as well. So I kind of have to say, okay, so what is kind of the prevailing analysis that's going on right now? And, you know, do I foresee this a possibility or um, do I think this is just an insane suggestion? So, I mean, on Twitter is where you you find a lot of insane suggestions because that's where all the biases are. I mean, how how often, uh, I have my own answer for this. I'm curious as to yours. How often do you find... um, you know, just the feedback being valuable as a contrarian signal to anything you tweet? Um, it's, you know, it depends. It depends on, you know, I mean, when you put something out there, you're opening yourself up to a lot of responses. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and some of them, you know, some of them are helpful and, you know, some of them are insane. But, yeah. yeah. You know, but there, there is a there's there's not like I mean I'm not afraid to learn like where I'm wrong I mean if I tweet something I mean and you have more followers than I do but I know that if there's somebody out there that knows that what I just said is categorically and mathematically wrong that they will tweet oh, that yeah. at me. You know, they need yeah. to stand on that hill because like, it's like a once a year thing for some of these people. And I'm happy to give it to them. You know, I don't yeah. how is that is I find that this is actually part of, of who I've become as an analyst is is that I get I get to be wrong faster because my audience is going to make sure that I, I know how dumb I am on certain things. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's you know, that comes at the course. And I you know, nobody gets everything 100 percent right. You, everybody is wrong at times. And so, you know, uh, sometimes it's good to put things out on Twitter just to see what the, you know, what is the narrative and, you know, am I thinking right or wrong on this? And what are other people thinking about this? So I think it's very helpful um, to put stuff out there and to see what other people are saying. Yeah, because you get that direct feedback. Um, talk about being dumb. I'm going to use a quote that, um, at least one of my favorite quotes in terms of preparing for this that I read from you. <laughs> Our leaders are dumb and woefully negligent. 
Well, there are, you know, and that is something that I've repeated often, because when I look at uh, the prevailing energy situation going on right now, particularly with all this ESG and the green transition, I mean, you have to look at some of these leaders and say, really, what are you you thinking? Are you, you know, are you really that crazy? Just like, um, for example, Germany closing down all of their nuclear plants only to reopen coal plants, but being on a green transition plan. So you're either, you know, dumb or woefully <laughs> negligent in how you're trying to pursue your goals. Yeah, and that's just it's I, I love it. I mean, it's, it's like, and what you also did, which was uh, very few people do, which you, you roped in my homeland, uh, you didn't just say the U.S. government or the German government, you said the Canadian government, you know, which is, uh, as, as we have a special relationship, us Canadians, with those in Chicago, it's actually one of the places that most resembles you know, kind of the culture. Um, you know, how about that Canadian government and uh, my buddy there, uh, Trudeau? Uh, that uh, what do you think? What do you think their impact's going to be on energy markets or on ESG or all of the above? Well, I think this is, and I lived in in Canada for five years. Oh, you so did? Where? I, yeah, yeah, I lived in uh, in uh, Quebec. Oh, Quebec, tu parles français? No. No, no, no. <laughs> no, like, no. The terrible American that lived there that didn't learn French. Um, uh, but I, I think those, you know, I think that the policies currently in place, particularly when you're looking at things like the carbon tax, which is only going to hurt, say, the farmers, right? Because you're raising their costs, their input costs. Um, that this is going to, you know, in turn raise the cost of foods and other goods, you know, that uh, are affected from this carbon tax. So you have to kind of look at, I think, um, you know, I think it's a, a little aggressive and I think it's counterintuitive to mm. what you're trying to do. And I'm trying to put that as nicely as possible. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, there, there's no, I mean, I think it's simpler, the simplest way is just to call it dumb. I mean, you're like, uh, it's Elon Musk, I just finished reading his book. He, he uses it all the time. I mean, it's, uh, it's like if you know more than somebody else or somebody is completely and obviously negligent, like you said, or, or politically compromised, I mean, that's a different thing, right? I mean, that you can be dumb, like Elon says, like, okay, I asked you to build this with the cheapest material and you're using expensive material. Why aren't you? And you don't have an answer. You're dumb. I need somebody smarter than you. Okay. Uh, that's like the practical business person. But on, in, right. on the government side, you've been critical and I have been too, but I mean, I, I love some of your one-liners on Janet Yellen. Um, you know, this is, she's not dumb. She is, she is, you wouldn't say on paper, actually, that anybody at the Fed, they, they'd say that they're really super duper smart. Um, but this is like, can, can you get into that? Can you get into, they are, to use your words, woefully negligent when they talk, Janet Yellen, for example, let's use her recent comments on the bond market. Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actual ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, our recent comments were, you know, she sees no problem. Absolutely no problem with the recent dive, of course. But, you know, she's also well known for saying, you know, 
those sorts of things before we, you know, we heard her say back in, uh, you know, 2000, what, seven or eight, we're never going to be in a recession again. Um, so, you know, using those terms, those absolute terms are really not smart and kind of negligent when you're uh, talking about the economy, which is ever evolving and really depending on uh, the policies that the Fed puts in place, the policies that the United States government puts in place. And so I think that is a big problem, particularly when it comes to her, because she likes to talk in these absolutes. Mm -hmm. And she's a former you know, head of the Federal Reserve who was allegedly right. a apolitical, not. Um, but we, we end up in this place now where, I mean, it looks to me at least, and if I take, you know, I have my, my thoughts are now casts or forecasts on inflation and stagflation, and you have yours, they're, they're similar. Um, do you, like, if that's right, it appears that for the first time, at least in my career, that the Federal Reserve is losing control of the bond market. What do you think? I think they are losing control of the bond market. And I think the other problem that they're having is that fiscal policy is butting heads with monetary policy right now. And so what you have is you have, you know, you have the Federal Reserve on one hand trying to tighten everything and tighten the market, raise rates. And then you have the Treasury yelling, essentially doing the opposite. And you have Congress spending money like crazy. And so, you know, we've we've got two but two two ideas that are competing right now, and that's not really helping us. And I think that really kind of sets forth that theory of we're kind of in a stagflationary environment right now, right? Because you're creating inflation from the government while you're trying to create disinflation from the Federal Reserve. <laughs> well, that's the, it's the joke, right? I mean, if it, guys, if you can pop up slide 117, this is our, uh, yeah, you might like this, the Inflation Reduction Act Part 1, Tracy. So check this out. You know, like, what is the cost of this program? I mean, you, you, you don't know. I mean, um, you know, let, let's, just, let's just say that it's going to cost a lot more, and, and, and that's where we're at on that. And the next slide, on slide 118, we call this the Inflation Reduction Act Part 2. You know, so... You know, the pitch, this thing was marketed as this climate-friendly bullshit, um, and it contained like $500 billion in new spending, tax incentives fully loaded. But, you know, that was the pitch back in 2022. Like, since then, those cost estimates have gone vertical, and, you know, we're at a spot where he doesn't know what to do with that. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's what you, I'm assuming this is what you mean, which is on the one hand, you have restrictive. On the other hand, you have the big G spending plus an inflationary impact embedded therein. How do you think, how do you think politically you like, you, you turn back those two slides and, and re reverse them? I, you know, I don't, I think you're going to need a change of government, obviously. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're going to need some fiscal conservatives in government. Right. And uh, that's going to take just a different policy change, because what's really happening with this Inflation Act, not Reduction Act, it's an Inflation Act, really, is that a lot of these companies that are getting these big subsidies from the government for going green are are actually making other industries spend more money and they're keeping 
those subsidies and not putting them back into the economy. So what's happening is we're creating a snowball spending effect. Yeah, that's, I mean, you could see, actually, you just front ran my net. Did you, do you have my slides? Because uh, it's on slide, <laughs> the next slide. So this is Act 3, which you can see, like, the, the first, you know, the left side versus the right side of the chart. You know, and this is like, this is the, R, the IRA energy provision costs, you know, estimate. <laughs> so right. It's like their own estimate. They, they ballooned, and they're going to keep ballooning because, you know, what what's happening is, you know, we need to expand our grid. There's no money in... Uh, grid expansion right now, right? Because if we want to put all of these electric vehicles online, if we want to turn everything electric and get rid of your gas stove, you know, have the government tell you what you can eat, sleep, breathe, and do, um, you're going to need to expand the grid. And the, the problem is there's no money in for the grid. And the idea was, I think, I think the idea was we'll give these companies subsidies and they'll help expand the grids, but they're not doing that. So what's happening is, again, we're just creating the snowball effect and that and those costs, you know, I, that's probably conservative, you know, go out another couple of years and that's going to grow. Yeah, we'll just uh, finish it up with uh, Act, um, you know, the Reduction Act Part 4 on the next slide just so that we can finish the thought. But again, this chart, of course, Tracy, shows this impact going into 26, 20, you know, well beyond the election, right? So, um, you know, that's, of all the things that you read, um, all the political candidates on the, on the Republican side, I guess, I mean, I don't know how much you pay attention to. I, I, I really, it's not my bag. Uh, I went to school with DeSantis, but that's about the only thing I know about, about him, um, is, like, do you see, is there any political candidate who's taking the grid, like, right there into their top three things that they might be running on? Not, not really. <laughs> not really. I mean, you have, you know, I don't really want to turn this into a political discussion. Right. But, you know, but you have to listen to what they say and listen to what they're attacking. And so far, nobody really has a solid plan for that yet, maybe Vivek. Um, but only because he talks about energy more than I would say most of the other candidates right now. Yeah, I mean, he, he's anti, I mean, he's definitely anti-ESG. I mean, that, uh, that for one, I actually had a conversation with the, with the company um, that he owns called Strive yesterday. They're, they're out there, like, really just saying, hey, this is about governance. Um, and I don't want to make it a po- political discussion either. I just wanted to know if there's any politician with a solution, because if there's not, then your view and my view of um, stagflation isn't going away anytime soon. And the number one thing that at least the equity market, which is certainly a bunch of yo-yos relative to the junk bond or high yield market, which I want to talk about next, uh, or the commodity market or the currency market. I mean, I think they've been actually the bond market. There's these other markets uh, (laughs) that have actually gotten inflation and the structural, you know, sustainability of inflation, if you will. Um, I think they've nailed it. I mean, it's just the stock market that's just like, oh, but if inflation goes down, then bond yields will go down, then I get my my seven stocks back, you know? <laughs> it you know. feels like that, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, it does feel like that. The market, you know, doesn't want to go down. Um, everybody wants the market to go down, uh, you know, and I think that it, we have a lot of other things with geopolitical risk right now. You know, we saw a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the yields coming down a little bit. We saw gold bounce, you know, but that's more of the geopolitical risk trade. I don't know if it's, you know, it's a sustainable move at this point yet. Well, you, I mean, so you're, you're of the mindset that this is a, a structural stagflation, correct? Correct. 
Yeah, so structural stagflation means that you're going to have higher inflation for longer and therefore higher bond, bond yields for, for longer. So I don't know, you know why. I guess that's why there's such a rabid need or want and, to have these narratives. Yeah, well, and the Fed, I mean, Powell keeps saying this is higher for longer. I mean, yeah. he hasn't stopped saying that for, you know, a year and a half now. I mean, he's, that, you know, everybody's waiting for all of these cuts and literally he hasn't changed his stance in a year and a half. Higher for longer, higher for longer, higher for longer. What yeah. it is now, the, for some reason nobody wants to believe him. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, it's like you and I are you know much more from like the main street side. I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to. Oh yeah. Know, I mean, like when I define or try to define, I've been using Peter Turchin's book called End Times. You know, he says there's the state, there are the elites, and there are the rest of us. And you know, like you know, that's why I use my fingers that way because you and I are part of the rest of us. And I don't, I don't. I think the elites really have bit, you know, they've, they've essentially built their entire compensation structure over this downward sloping cost of capital and lower for longer interest rates. And at any sign of uh, a challenge to that compensation scheme that they have, then they're going to tell the Fed that it's time to, you know, cut bait and turn tail. But you know, Powell, Powell, even though I call him P.E. Powell, like he used to work at Carlisle, I did too. I mean, it's like, a, you know, he has been pretty much the, the, the adult in the room on that. Do you, do you expect, like, I'm sure you get this question, because um, it's the whole in, bloody institutional business or the elites that ask it this way. You know, do you think if we hit, we have stagflation, hit a recession, stocks go down harder, um, that, that Powell is going to turn tail, or do you think he's going to stand on the line? I think that he'll, you know, he... I think he wants to save his reputation more than anything. And I think he thinks that if he changes, you know, turns, a, does a 180, in other words, um, that that would highly damage his reputation. On the other hand, what I, I think he's going to get a lot of pressure in an election year if we do go into a recession next right. year. Right. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. Uh, just in general from, you know, all political parties and all the higher ups in government and everything. So I think that is going to be a challenge if we do get into a recession next year. And I also think it's going to be a big problem because the government's going to do everything they can, you know, throw the kitchen sink at it if they have to in spending wise to make sure that we don't hit a recession because you don't get reelected when you're in a recession. Right? Well, I mean, they've, they've already done that part. That's the, that's actually the problem from a modeling perspective. We show this uh, on slide 107, I think, guys, the rate of change of, um, actually, no, that's those are just the, uh, if go to slide uh, 110. You know, the rate of change of government spending this year, if you're, you know, again, I think that the value in, in providing rate of change research is that, yeah, that's, that's the only reason why we're not in recession is because they've spent their brains out and now they have to deal with it politically through this debt ceiling debate or otherwise. I just, you know, when you, when you end up on the line, though, like, I mean, this week was really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how much of your time you, you spend uh, Fed watching. Is that part of what you do, like commentary? I do, but, you know, I'm no Danielle. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> she, she's phenomenal, right? Like there, so, she, so her answer to the question, and has been very consistent. And you don't have to be consistent. You can change your mind, right? And if you're going to be consistent about something, be flexible. Um, but she's been very consistent for, for almost two years now, saying this guy's going to stand on the line, 
partly due to what you just said, like it matters to him. The guy's worth, what, $115 million? He doesn't have to do this job. I mean, he, he doesn't want to look like a, somebody who has no credibility. Um, but we really have, in the last week and a half since bond yields, you know, since they lost control of the bond market, you've seen Man. them really change. I mean, the weakest are the, you know, the wallflowers, like the most incompetent, like, like the, guy in, the guy in Chicago. Um, uh, what the hell is his name? Goolsby? Um, you know, like those, we know why he's going to say what he's going to say, right? He's bought and paid for. But really, I think, it's an open, I think it's an open question with Powell. I mean, he starts every presser after they raise rates with, we're doing this for the American people. And right. so you either are or you aren't. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think the last meeting, the presser, was probably the first time that I felt like he was less confident in his stance than he's been, you know, for the rest, for for all year. Um, And it was just a slight kind of change in his tone and how he answered questions during the presser. But um, it it, it didn't feel to me like he completely turned. It just felt like this was the first time he, he seemed a little bit less confident in what, what he was doing. Yeah, I, I thought he'd look like he was on meds. I was like, um, that was my first tweet. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've like live tweeted every one of these bloody things. And it's like, I didn't know that that was going to be part of my life experience. But um, yeah, just, you know, I learned this a long time ago. I mean, you study the art of lying. It's called kinesics. And you can, you can see through people's body language and hand signals and certainly in rate of change versus what they used to say. I mean, he used to be just upright. I'm doing this for the American people. We're going to stay vigilant. Blah, 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 blah. And you're right. I think that that's a very astute observation. Um, and subsequent to that, you know, I don't know if, I mean, he must have told these guys to all come out on you know, Monday and, and give dove, dovish Fed speak. I mean, it's not like it came out of nowhere. I know, but I noticed that. I was like, where is everybody dovish I mean, this today? morning, um, Waller, this guy Waller, who I was ripping on, um, Waller, like, we're going to make you famous, Tracy and I. Like, and, I, and I'd encourage you to do it <laughs> because it's the right. people that get screwed, right? I mean, when you say, Absolutely. okay, when, when Wall Street calls you and says, hey, man, bond yields are going up too fast, you've got a turn tail. Well, now oil's going up 30% in your face and the bond market's running away from you. So it's not like they can just do what they need to do for the elites and, and it doesn't pound the people. I mean, that to me um, is, is them losing control. Waller this morning quite literally said, Tracy, um, the last three months of inflation data have been very good. Okay. You used a time, a time horizon that we can chart, you know, where oil went up 35 40%. You know, the CPI went from 2.97 to 3.7. And you use the word very instead of good. Like, it's just an out fucking right lie. <laughs> I mean, housing's gone up, energy's gone up. Obviously, the Fed doesn't include that, right? They only, poor, like, <laughs> right. nothing that you actually use is in their metric. But, you know, when you're looking at inflation, you know, just we had a hot, a slightly hot print today, right? And most of that was due to housing, so a little bit higher in services. Um, but, you know, I mean, Nothing's getting cheaper by any stretch of the Not even close. And, and, and I'd, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, of course, trying to enlist you in Hedgeye Nation uh, on these people because I, I, I don't think that they can, you know, if you put, um, and I'm the lesser of the two of you, uh, which is great, um, but Wall Street Silver, Chai Girl, and this Canadian guy, together, you have like 
a lot of followers, right? And you're not really allowed to, to lie to American people when they already know they're being lied to, that obviously. I just don't think you can. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Agile. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe and tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. No, you can't. You have to be. <laughs> you just can't because people know and people see through it and you need somebody to go, oh, you know, finally, somebody, <laughs> somebody sees the same thing I see. Right. Right. I mean, this is kind of I've been using this all week, but um, uh, the head of UFC, Dana White, you know, he said, he said, look, I, we know we know the state's lying to us. We know we know the elites are lying to us. And he's like, we're just not going to believe it anymore. Like, we're not just, just not going to take it. So um, I do appreciate like, I mean, you just staying on the line there every day. You don't have to do that. Right. I mean, it takes. It takes courage. It takes credibility. It's something that I know your community, you know, the one that that you really have is your close followers are, um, you know, they they must be appreciative because the people, they obviously need a voice on this stuff. Um, but uh, enough about that. The um, this you've written about this or you talked about this, is, you, and you just mentioned it again on housing, uh, because that too is not widely uh, understood. This mortgage cost squeeze. Can you talk about that? I mean, the, I mean, mortgage rates are getting higher and higher. Obviously, that that squeezes people. That takes, especially, it's going to be most difficult on first-time buyers. And then the problem it's it's creating like a self-consuming black hole. <laughs> the fact that nobody with a more a mortgage that they got at you know two three percent is going to sell their house right now and get into a seven and a half percent mortgage rate. Right. <laughs> so we have less housing, less housing on the market. And yet, you know, you have first time buyers that can't afford housing right now because because there's less housing on the market. You have housing prices are higher and mm -hmm. being squeezed higher. And, you know, that certainly didn't help, you know, during the pandemic when um, they, you know, went to zero through everything at it and you know so that that certainly didn't help as everybody was scrambling to buy houses and uh, depleting the housing market essentially um and so now that you're raising rates it's creating a bigger problem i just call it the housing black hole yeah i mean it is it's it's um you know it's interesting just bringing back my homeland in canada it's it's the same black hole, but it's uh, in the media, in the Canadian media, it's a more obvious black hole because people are allowed to talk about it. So in the U.S., of course, you have a higher low, right? Like the elites got all the money and the screw you to the 50 percent of Americans that don't have any money left anyway. And if you want to go get a house, I mean, just work harder at J.P. Morgan, right? Uh, yeah. Or actually, no, I think he said the other day that um, now you're going to work three and a half days. You're not going to own anything and you're going to like it. Uh, I think... <laughs> 
due to AI. <laughs> I think that was, he didn't say it that way, but that's kind of how my Canadian ear heard right. it. Um, right. But in Canada, like I was you know, just there at my, bro my brother's place at the end of the summer. And if you have like CBC or CTV on, I mean, it's a pretty steady appetite of what you just said. Like you know, the, 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 the common uh, person with a common budget and a common problem on mortgages, like it's a top three at least topic. Uh, in addition to the wildfires in Canada, those were that's all, that's all people talk about. I mean, they can't afford to they can't afford to live in a, in, a, in a place with these these kinds of mortgage rates. Yeah, well, I, you know, and I think the Canadian housing bubble has gone on for a lot longer yeah. than the United States as well. It's a rolling so bubble, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it's it's pretty, you know, it's pretty much left to lower left to upper right hand corners. Mm -hmm. What? How that market looks like, which is just insane. And so, you know, I can't imagine that it's wearing on people just because it's been for, you know, it's been for years. Yep. The, uh, and uh, one other topic before I take questions and, and they're loading up here, if you have questions for uh, your favorite tweeter here, Tracy, then pop them into the queue. Um, the uh, topic of what's happened in the junk bond market or high yield junk. I mean, this morning, I tweeted this chart, which, you know, unless you're living in a cave, uh, which a lot of people do, they're, they're trolls, right? So that's the kind of the, where they domicile with no mortgage. But we have a lot of rent-free space in their heads. And, and good day to you. This is a free broadcast. <laughs> but the, um, if you look at, like, so, uh, Jen Ryan, if you can show the chart that I was showing on high yield. I mean, I mean high yield, what, I mean, first of all, when people tell me they can't see what's going on economically in credit, I'm like, do you have a chart of credit? I mean, are you an idiot? Uh, <laughs> talk about being dumb. I mean, that, that's a pretty obvious uh, bear market chart. Um, what, what do you think you know, about that? What do you think about what's going on in junk bonds? What do you think about what's going on just generally in credit? Well, I mean, as far as junk bonds, the problem with junk bonds is, yeah, the, the you know, the yield is so high right now, what is it, 9.62% or so, something like that. But if you look at bankruptcy levels of those companies, um, that's going up. And so that's gonna be a major problem when you're looking at, so I think that if you're going to be in that market whatsoever, you have to be very careful on uh, uh, of what you're doing. I mean, I would say to the average person, stay away from that market. It looks like a tinderbox to me um, because you know, credit ratings have gone down, you have bankruptcies going up higher and yields pushing higher. Um, so to me, uh, it's a powder keg in that particular market. You, you got a lot of powder kegs. I mean, these things, you know, you know what, I, you, you, there, are not, there are a lot right now. <laughs> yeah, they are. I mean, what could possibly go wrong when you when you have all these things happening, you know, at the, at the same time? I actually have a pretty long list on slide 62. We call it uh, going from stag timber, which fits, you know, uh, uh, Tracy Shukart's stagflation view, which I share. Uh, so we call it stagtember instead of September, and we go for old shocktober. You know, like like that list of items. I don't know if you can see them, but uh, or if you have any thoughts on on any or all of them. But I mean, everything from you know ch the childcare cliff to all these government spending plans uh, or the strikes for that matter. Um, SNAP benefits rolling off, student loans rolling off. I mean. When you have as many ca uh, powder kegs that you've highlighted so far in our 37 minutes of this discussion, and then you just add all that on, which is 100% certainty that it's happening right now in, in October, right. you just got to buy stocks, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, right out. <laughs> 
Um, you know, I, I think if you're looking at the broader markets, I think it, what people are looking at is that, you know, there's not a lot of places to park your money right now. U.S. is the, you know, the most liquid market in the world, stock market. And so I think it's getting, you know, a lot of, you know, pushed because of that. Um, and I think also, obviously, you know, when you're having geopolitical risk elsewhere, you're going to have money leaving sketchier markets and heading to more liquid markets. You know, if you look at uh, emerging markets, they're doing terrible. Money's leaving quickly. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, China's been a disaster. But again, that's like, a, I call that the, the Titanic, right? I mean, it's sinking. The cycle's happening. Credit's happening. All these powder keg items are there. And you just light the fuse, and then it all goes down slowly and then all at once. I mean, it's you know, crowding into the place where you can find liquidity. To me, like when I watch the bond market trade, for example, uh, or watch those seven stocks trade, that's what it is, right? I mean, you got a, somebody that's running a trillion dollars in New York, and it's a diversified fund with like a lot of fixed income in it. When you're literally powder kegging it every day and losing money every single day in those positions, at some point you got to sell 100 million bucks worth, 100 billion dollars worth of bonds and buy those seven stocks because there's nowhere else to go. It doesn't mean that those have to go up every day after you did that. <laughs> right. Well, and then you have, you know, every all of these ETFs, all these diversified ETFs, all have the same stocks in them. <laughs> yep. so. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. Fun times. I'm sure we'll look, look, look back on this as the great buying opportunity uh, at big time lower highs. Uh, on questions, um, if you don't mind, Tracy, I'm going to ask uh, other people's questions here. Um, to start, you know, the easy one, this is uh, actually, you know, you have, you have uh, notes and thoughts on this, on this anyway, the topic of the SPR. Um, so this one's from Don. Uh, Tracy, what are your thoughts on the draining of the SPR? How vulnerable does this leave the U.S. considering the recent actions in the Middle East? Well, there's two, there's, I, okay, I am of the opinion, I'll state my opinion, I think this is very dangerous, and very negligent on behalf of our government. You know, when we had, you know, the oil embargo, 1973, October of 1973 to March of 1974, that's five months, we have 17 days worth of, uh, worth of uh, SPR left to, you know, get us through. Now, I understand the other side of the argument, you know, we didn't have shale then, we have a lot more production, but if we had a catastrophic event, it's not like you can just pump more immediately. It, it doesn't work that way, right? And so you would still need the SPR. And there are many times that we have used the SPR. We had to use the SPR for Katrina. We had to use, you know, so there are t- times in modern times that we've had to tap into the, the SPR. And so Again, I am of the opinion that I think it is woefully negligent of our government, and I. But I understand that people may have a different opinion of me. I think they're wrong. Yeah, I think you've, call, you've called it the bureaucratic petroleum reserve. Exactly, exactly. And I think that you know, I just think that using it as, as a piggy bank, um, and and this is you know not well. Biden is the first administration to drain half of it literally for to not move oil prices at all um you know we're still at you know eighty dollars eighty five dollars um but you know in the past we have seen administrations kind of use it as a piggy bank where um say the obama administration uh had they did use some of it to 
uh, revamped the SPR. It, it was in badly need of repair. So they sold barrels uh, to repair the SPR and then, uh, you know, kind of set that out. But um, they also used it for kind of their pet projects. Oh, we need some money for this. We don't know where else to get it. Let's sell out of the SPR. Um, and that's just for, you know, political, I, I want my project going through. And so there, you know, I just think that it's not a piggy bank and it's there for a reason. Yeah. I mean, all these decisions were made, right? The decision to make that move in the SPR, the decision to ramp deficit spending into a slowdown, the decision to not go for an, another rate hike when you should have. So the bond market did it for you. These are all, I don't care if you're political, apolitical or not, those decisions happened and so did the price action. So you got to deal with it. It is what it is, right? On the price action itself, by the way, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, it's interesting. I have of all the questions, like people are all, all asking, like, where do you think oil's going to go? Uh, so one, just to paraphrase, like one, one guy, Daniel's like, can it go to 100? And another guy just called out, and, and they're both guys, David from PA, asking uh, Chai Girl, you know, front month W, this is interesting, front month WTI crude trades 84 bucks on the 2033 contracts. Not like, in 20, the year 2033, uh, traded 56 bucks. So what, sh- what accounts for such deep and durable backwardation? He's insinuating, like, does that tell you where future demand's going? So is it 100 or is it going to be 50, 56? Well, you know, I think I think I think we're higher for longer. I mean, the curve is extremely backwardated right now, so that's telling us that you know it's a it's a tight market right now, um, and that you know it's so I think it, and just because of the fundamentals of the situation, aside from you know what the structure of the curve is telling us, the structure of the curve is telling us that um, oil prices are you know, said to be higher for longer. Now, obviously, you can always have changes in the curve depending on how, you know, supply demand uh, fluctuations. That said, you know, I think we're in for higher for longer. I don't want to say $100. You know, I think at $100, you're going to start creating demand destruction. And I think that's not good for anybody, right? It's not good for any economy, particularly emerging markets. And so you really don't want sustained prices at $100. Um, so, you know, if we could keep them in like the $80, $90 range, I think that's doable for most economies right now. Not that that it's perfect, but um, again, I, I don't want to see oil prices spiking over 100 and certainly nothing sustained over 100. Yeah, I mean, we saw that in the 08 recession. That was one of the easiest ways to make the call is as soon as you busted a move north of 100, that, you know, that was it for the U.S. consumer. I mean, so uh, good night and good luck on that. Last question. This is more of a, um, I don't know uh, what you're going to say to this, but again, John, uh, John Kamprath gets uh, two questions on the day. Good job, John. Um, Tracy, I bet a lot of people do not understand the different sources and uses of light, sweet, and heavy crude vis-a-vis U.S. energy independence. Can you explain this? Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. produces mostly light, sweet oil, which when you go to refine that, mostly all you can get is gasoline out of it. Right. All the U.S. produces very, very light oil. And so you can't get a lot of heavier distillates, heavier projects. So we import a lot of heavy oil from Canada, for example, mm-hmm. in order to make those distillates. And so, uh, you know, if you want to call energy independence, we don't need any crude imports. 
that will never occur unless you want no distillate products whatsoever. Um, or there's the other team that calls, well, you know, if we're a net exporter, then we're energy independent. But in my opinion, that doesn't make you energy dependent, independent by any stretch of the imagination because you still have to rely on other countries for imports. I'm glad I asked you, uh, Chai Girl, if you don't mind me calling you that because it uh, looks like you're comfortable with it. Uh, I'm glad I asked you all the energy questions at the end because you're like knocking them down like one by one. <laughs> like, well, I mean, a lot of these questions, like that's, that's, that's your expertise, right? That's your experience. And I really did want to get like first time on uh, Hedge ITV here. I want to let everyone get to know you first and kind of get through some of the, the bigger, maybe sometimes people think heavier stuff. But, um, you know, the, the, the answers on energy, I know a lot of people depend on you on that. So uh, I'll be uh, retweeting your stuff and engaging with you, too. So uh, watch out. Yeah. I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> well, you know what? You know who better be ready is uh, Waller. He better be ready for China. Waller better be ready. Exactly. Yeah. Waller, we're get, all, get ready. We're all, we're all over him. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're going to be up and down your backside, you Federal Reserve. You, I'm not going to call you what you know. I'm just going to call you who you are, which are you guys are unelected people. If you're going to make comments like that, you're going you're gonna to have to deal with me and Chai Girl, right? That's it for me. It's going to be the Stein Bomber. And if you, if you don't deal with me, you don't want to deal with that guy. I mean, on data, whew, Josh Steiner is the Stein Bomber, of course, and he's going to be live with the one and only Daniel Lacaye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedge subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedge Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgehog.com slash terms of service.